Today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what these, this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Author Megan O'Giblin was raised in the Christian faith and she attended Moody Bible Institute for college. But about midway through her college career, she dropped out of Moody because she walked away from the Christian faith. And after walking away from the faith, she looked back on her time in college and she did say, and she would say still, that her time in college uh, was, one of the things she was amazed by was the degree to which the community in her college uh, put a high value on thought and a high value on reason that they would talk through issues, that they would have these very rigorous discussions about the faith and about the various questions of the faith, that that was something she remembered from her college days before she walked away from the faith. Today, she's no longer a believer in God, 
and has lots of, of doubts. But this is what she said. I no longer believe in God. I have not for some time. I now live with the rest of modernity in a world that is disenchanted. I live in a university town, a place that is populated by people who consider themselves called to a life of the mind. Yet my friends and I rarely talk about ideas or try to persuade one another of anything. It's understood that people come to their convictions by elusive forces, some combination of hormones, evolutionary biases, and unconscious needs. Twice a week, I attend a yoga class where I'm instructed to let go of the thinking mind. In Acts 17 here, Paul arrives at yet another city named Athens where he once again reasons with the people from the scriptures, just as he did in early Acts 17 in Thessalonica, in Berea. We've seen this pattern. Now he's in Athens, and he's reasoning from the scriptures. Every time Paul comes into a city, he is calling people to engage the thinking mind, not to let it go, but actually to engage the thinking mind around what the gospel of Jesus Christ says to our world and to our culture. The question is, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ explain to our world? The short answer is verse 30. Verse 30 is really the, the summary statement of this entire passage here about Paul in Athens. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The gospel of Jesus Christ explains ignorance and it explains repentance. First, how does the gospel explain ignorance? Now, we often use that term in a condemning or a belittling way. Paul's not doing that here. By ignorance, he means that which is just not known, something that's not known. And he describes this situation in Athens as a time of or a season of ignorance, that Athens is in this place of ignorance. Why? Well, let's explore who Paul talks to when he first gets to this city. He arrives, and we see in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul. Now, Athens in the 5th century BC, it was the greatest city of, of culture and philosophy. By the time we get to the 1st century AD, when Paul's writing here and Paul's speaking, it had lost some of its luster, but it was still a very prestigious city. It was a highly intellectual city. It was a city that was actually known for philosophy. It was the philosophical center of the region. It was the hometown, the native town of, of Socrates and Plato. And this was a city full of philosophy, and it had these 
Epicurean, and Stoic philosophers. Now, who were these philosophers? Well, the Epicureans' philosophy presented pleasure as the the chief end of life. That life was about seeking pleasure. And not so much sensual pleasure, but, but a pleasure of the mind, a life of tranquility, free from superstitious fears, free from pain, free from disturbing passions. And the Epicureans, their view of God was, they didn't deny God, but they just believed God was far off and not involved in the lives of people. More of a kind of deistic view of God. These were the the Epicureans. In fact, one Epicurean in 200 AD, Diogenes, sums up their belief system by saying this. Nothing to fear in God, nothing to feel in death. Good pleasure can be attained. Evil can be endured. So if you take that philosophy and, and, and speak it in today's terms, it would be something like this. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, stay away from it and avoid everything that hurts. Now, I think we'd all say that philosophy is alive and well today been alive and well for centuries, The Stoics, or Stoic philosophy, on the other hand, they believed that life was full of good and bad, and that you couldn't avoid the bad. You couldn't avoid what hurts because they understood that life was out of your control. And so life comes at you, and the one thing they, they did believe was that you were in control of yourself. And so whether good came at you or bad came at you, you do the best you can. You grin and bear it. You be a stoic, right? You grin and bear it in hard times. Now, when it comes to God, they were, they were pantheists, which means that God is one with the universe, one with the material world. So they would say, God is in that wall. God's in that chair that you're sitting in, right? Just one, one with nature. Stoics had a high sense of morality and a high sense of duty. Now, while these philosophies were very different, here's what they had in common. They both were an attempt to come to terms with life, especially in the face of uncertainty and hardship. They also both believed that self-sufficiency and autonomy was the highest good. You are in charge of yourself. That was the highest good. And then the last thing they had in common is they were essentially materialists. So it was, you live according to nature. You live according to the created world, right? God is one with the created world, so you live according to it. Now, here's the question. If that was the philosophy in Athens, how did it affect the activity or the spiritual condition of the people in Athens, right? How did, how did it affect them? Well, Paul comes into the city and he starts teaching something very strange to their ears. They had never heard this news about a resurrected Christ. They hadn't heard about Jesus. They hadn't heard the gospel. And so Paul comes in and he starts explaining it and it is just strange. It's weird, doesn't make sense to them. So they call him in front of the Areopagus, which was basically a court in Athens that oversaw all issues relating to religion, relating to morals. So he comes before the Areopagus. 
and he explains. How did Paul describe the spiritual activity of the Athens? Look at verses 22 to 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That word religious can also mean superstitious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. When Paul entered Athens, there were idols everywhere, everywhere. We read over in verse 29. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, right? an image formed by the art and imagination of man. It all makes sense how they were behaving. Because if they believed that God was one with nature, basically no distinction between creator and creation, that's what pantheism is, no distinction between creator and creation, God is one with the material world, then they use the material world to connect with him. They use the material world to worship him. They use the material world to get what they wanted from him. There was a lot of superstition involved because God was one with the material world. So they were very religious. They were very superstitious. All these idols everywhere in their city. What was their spiritual condition? How does Paul describe what was really going on in their hearts behind all of this religious activity? Well, he starts in verse 27 with acknowledging with them that God is near. Says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Then Paul actually quotes two of their poets in verse 28. Two of their very well known poets, Paul quotes. He says, In him we live and move and have our being, and for, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul acknowledges that God is near. But then he gets to the futility of their search, the futility of all of their activity in verses 26 to 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, we read this verse, and it sounds like Paul is encouraging them and saying, you're feeling your way towards God, you're really close. But that's not what Paul's communicating here. The word he uses for that phrase, feel their way toward, is a word that was used by one of their well-known poets, the Greek poet Homer, who wrote before this time and had very famous pieces and stories and poet poems and, and one of those well-known stories that the people in Athens would have known inside and out was the story of the Cyclops. And the story went something like this. The, this giant one-eyed Cyclops had captured Odysseus and his men. And so Odysseus and his men um, caused the Cyclops to get drunk and then stabbed him in the eye so that he would be blind. And then Odysseus and his men wanted to get out of the cave where they were captured. And here's the key. It says that the Cyclops groped and feeled his way around, he's blind, to try to get Odysseus 
so he could capture him and kill him. That word in that story, to feel your way towards, is the exact word that Paul uses here in these verses in 26 and 27. And so what Paul's doing is actually highlighting the the tragedy and the irony of the human situation. That spiritually speaking, human beings are, are feeling their way around, trying and stumbling in the dark, trying to find their way towards God. He says, this is what the people of Athens were doing as they were stumbling around in the dark, trying to find their way to God. And and you know the experience, if you're blindfolded, right? If you've got a blindfold on, there can be something right in front of you and you don't see it because you've got a blindfold on. And so Paul is not saying here, these people of Athens are so close to finding God. Actually, what he's saying is they will never find God as long as the blindfold is on. They will continue to feel their way around and and make statues and idols and all these kind of things to try to find God, but they're blinded. They're stumbling around in the dark. They'll only find God if God reveals himself and the blinders removed. If you've ever been to Sedona, Arizona, you've seen one of the beautiful parts of God's creation. It is absolutely stunning because Sedona is known for what's called the Red Rock Formations. They're all over the city, the town, the surrounding region, famous for it. People travel to see these Red Rock Formations. Sedona is also famous for something else. It has become a spiritual mecca in our world. People travel to Sedona from all over the place to find, to experience what is believed to be this very strong spiritual energy in Sedona. And then if they can experience this, there is enlightenment, there's healing to be had. If you go into downtown Sedona, you will find a myriad of shops that are touting their brand of spirituality. And there's a, there's a lot. There's palm reading, there's tarot card reading, there's chakra balancing, There's past life regression through hypnosis. There is uh, aura photography that captures the colors of your electromagnetic energy field that radiates from your body. There's a bazaar where there's up to 300 different crystals that you can get your hands on that can bring healing and can bring inspiration, that can bring enlightenment. Now, that is a picture, a great picture of what it looks like to stumble around in the dark trying to find God. In this city where God's creation is right in front of you and it's beautiful, pointing to the creator, people are unable to see with a blindfold on. And so all you're left to do is then to make creation itself the God that itself has the spiritual energy or the things that can heal you. It's a picture of stumbling around in the dark. Here's the question. What does your stumbling around in the dark, searching for God, look like? How do you cope with an uncertain 
in a very difficult world. Maybe your stumbling in the dark looks something like traveling to a place like Sedona. And there's other places like it that you travel to to find that spiritual energy that can heal, that can bring a sense of, uh, of order to your chaos. Or, or maybe your stumbling looks more in the dark, looks more like the Epicureans, which is, I'm just gonna do what feels good. I'm gonna avoid what feels bad. And, and I'm gonna just believe that God's just way out there somewhere. He's just not involved in my world, my life, or this world. Or maybe your stumbling around in the dark looks a little bit more like the Stoics. I'm just gonna grin and bear it. I'm just gonna do the best I can when the good, the bad comes. And I'm gonna live one with nature. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best to live one with nature and try to get some of this spiritual energy to help me grin and bear it, right? Or maybe you're stumbling around in the dark looks a little more like the description of the people of Athens in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That, that's a, a way to say they were just sitting around, give me the next philosophy. What's the new hottest trending philosophy of the day? Let me hear about it, maybe that'll work. And, and so maybe that's a little bit more how you deal with you're stumbling in the dark, right? It's that maybe that new innovative personality profile that's gonna unlock everything. Not naming any names of personality profiles. You figure that out. Or maybe it's the political platform that finally has diagnosed the problem with our world or our country. Or, or maybe it's the psychologist that has turned famous podcaster that just is able to solve every bit of life's dilemmas. All of that, in whatever version of that, Paul would call times of ignorance. Times of ignorance. The gospel of Jesus Christ explains ignorance, but it also explains repentance. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked or was patient with, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance is the pathway out of ignorance. Repentance is the pathway out of ignorance, but what does it look like? Have you ever been to a party where someone is blindfolded trying to hit a pinata? You ever had the experience of watching someone blindfolded, the pinatas maybe a, a foot or two in front of them, and you just watch them wildly swinging the stick and never hitting the pinata, and you get a good laugh at their expense, right? All part of the pinata party. That is a great image of what it means to be in times of ignorance, spiritually speaking, right? That God is, is, is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's, he's near us. But blindfolded, we just, we're swinging the stick. We're missing. We're searching. We're trying to find something that's going to heal, something that's going to bring order to our chaos, something that's going to bring certainty. You know, I've been at those pinata parties, and at some point, if you've been to one, when somebody is wildly swinging and missing, somebody finally steps up to put an end to the misery, right? We've laughed enough at the person, 
it's a futile, it's futile. And so what does somebody do? They come up and they say, let me just take this blindfold off you. And they take the blindfold off and there's the pinata and they can hit the pinata. Spiritually speaking, we are swinging with a blindfold on, trying to find God, searching for God, and making gods because we can't find the one true God. And so we're swinging and we're searching. And spiritually speaking, Paul says, that the blindfold doesn't come off until God intervenes and reveals himself. The blindfold doesn't come off until God intervenes and reveals himself. You say, well, then how does God reveal himself? Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God reveals himself through the resurrection. He has revealed himself through a man who walked out of a grave nearly 2,000 years ago. And it's this resurrection of Jesus that gives assurance that one day you will stand before Jesus in judgment. Now, what does that mean? Well, notice how Paul's sermon here or teaching unfolds before the Areopagus. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man with all the temples that they had made in Athens, all the idols and the temples and the statues, the people of Athens were acting like they were the landlords and God was the tenant. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The people of Athens thought they were the ones sustaining the gods. And they had it completely backwards. Completely backwards. They belonged to God. They were the tenants, not the landlords. They belonged to God, and God was the one who was sustaining them. I want you to imagine renting a truck for a week. And shortly after renting the truck, you begin to behave like this truck is your own. You begin to behave like you own the truck. And so early on in good Epicurean style, you decide I'm gonna get the most pleasure out of this truck that I can. I'm going to race it, I'm gonna redline it, I'm gonna squeal the tires, I'm gonna go off-roading, I'm gonna go mudding in it. I am just gonna get as much pleasure out of this truck as I can. Or uh, you, uh, in owning this truck or believing that you own it, now you go good stoic style, good high morality stoic style. And you say, I'm gonna take care of this truck. I'm gonna keep the mileage low because I wanna keep the most value in this truck. And so I am gonna barely drive it. Only when I really need to drive it, I'm gonna park it in the garage 
and I'm gonna wax it four times this week while I have it because I wanna keep the value that when I sell it, I get the most out of it. Or maybe with this truck that you are acting as though you own, you go good, verse 21, Athenian style. It's the latest philosophical trend of the day. So now it's the latest truck trend of the day. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, so early in the week you paint it, the new hot color for trucks. And, and then midweek you say, I'm gonna get the latest, greatest lift on this truck. It's the lift of the day for trucks. And then, and then I'm actually gonna be a trendsetter. So I'm gonna bring back the late 90s and early 2000s. I'm gonna put a big old fat grill guard on the front of this truck. That, when, I was, when I was in youth, by the way, when I was in youth ministry in Charlotte, North Carolina, I mean, high school boys would get these trucks and these grill guards got, I mean, they were just out of control. That was the thing to do. Late 90s, early 2000s. Okay, so you do all this activity, all this activity with your truck that you've rented. What's the one thing that hasn't changed? You don't own the truck. And at the end of the week, you're gonna to have to bring this truck back to the person who owns it. They're gonna inspect it. They're gonna assess damages. They're gonna uh, put together an estimate of what it costs to bring it back to its original condition. And they're gonna make you pay for it. We oftentimes live life like we own our lives. We live life as though our life belongs to us. My life belongs to me. Not realizing that your life belongs to God and is sustained by God. And that every pleasure you experience in life originates in God. Even if you have through your life abused pleasure, the fact that you can experience pleasure is because God made your body to experience pleasure. God has put parts on the human body so that sex can be enjoyed. God has put taste buds on your tongue so that food can be enjoyed and there can be a delight and pleasure in food. God has put endorphins in your body that naturally relieve pain and, and create a general sense of well-being. God has done that. You didn't do that. God gave that to you as a gift. And what Paul says here is one day you're gonna face Christ and have to give account. And verse 31 says that Jesus will judge you in righteousness, which means that he's gonna judge you according to the standard of perfection, according to the standard of righteousness. To use the truck example, there's only one condition you bring it back in, and that is perfect, good. Problem is, we've all damaged the life that God has given us, every person has damaged the life that they've been given. That's, that's called sin, that you've damaged the life God has given you. And repentance begins with confessing two realities. I've lived my life as though it's been my own, and because of that, I have damaged it, I've damaged others, refusing to acknowledge that it belongs to God. 
Repentance is then, once you've confessed that, it's turning to the resurrected Christ. And when you turn to the resurrected Christ, what do you see? When Christ raised from the dead, he appeared to one of his disciples, Thomas, and he showed Thomas the scars on his body from his crucifixion, the holes, the nail marks that were in his hands, the pierce mark in his side. Why is this so important? Because when you look at Christ now, the resurrected Christ, and for eternity, you see the receipt for the damage you've done. And you are assured that it has been paid. The damage you've done to yourself, the damage you've done to others, the refusal to acknowledge God, all of that was put on Christ. Scriptures say that he who knew no sin was made sin. Which means that Jesus became the addict. Jesus became the drug abuser. Jesus became the murderer, the gossip, the liar, the narcissist, the holier-than-thou prideful one. Jesus became that. And the damage that you have caused by your sin is reflected on Jesus' resurrected body today. He bears the scars of the damage that was placed on him that he paid for in judgment. And those scars will be there for eternity for you to see. And that is not to make you feel bad. That's to drive you to repentance over such an astonishing act of love by your Savior, Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus demands a response. It demands a response. And there are three responses that we see here in Athens. And they're the same three responses today. The first response, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. The Greeks thought that a person was made up of spirit or mind that was good and matter or body that was bad. And so if there was any possibility of life to come, they surely didn't want it all messed up with the body. So they didn't believe in a resurrection and they didn't want a resurrection. So they just outright rejected it. Second response, verse 32. But others said, we will hear you again about this. That's the response that says, I'm not ready to repent and believe. But if there is any chance that this is true, I mean, if there's any chance that what you're saying, Paul, is true and that Jesus came out of the grave and is alive today, then I gotta take this seriously. And I need to investigate more. And then the third response is verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. That's repentance and faith. Where are you today? If your response is like one of the first two responses, maybe just outright denial and rejection of the resurrection. Or maybe you're still investigating because in your mind you're thinking, if this is true, I do need to work this out. If either of your responses are like that, 
what's holding you back? What's holding you back from believing, repenting, and turning to the resurrected Christ in faith? Maybe it's because there's parts of the Bible that are just offensive to you, and you just can't square parts of the Bible with the scientific view of how the world operates, or maybe there's parts of the Bible that just don't match up with the ethical or moral view that, that you take of the world. There's just offensive parts of the Bible. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he recalls this kind of response through the years, and he said when he lived in Virginia and he pastored a church in Virginia, the big offense of the Bible was what the Bible said about money. And people just got wrapped around the axle about what the Bible said about money. But he said once he got to New York City, it, it wasn't so much about money, still certainly there, but the, the, the real offense in, in New York City was what the Bible said about sex. That, that was what got people just very much offended. And he would always say to people when they, he had this kind of discussion, he would respond this way. He said, let me ask you a question. Are you saying because there are parts of the Bible you don't like, that therefore Jesus Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead? And they would say, well, I, no, I'm not, not necessarily saying that. And then he went on to say this. Well, every part of the Bible is important, but would you please put the ethical teaching aside for a minute, and here's the point. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you're going to have to deal with everything in the Bible. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't know why you're vexing yourself over that. But the fact of the matter is, Paul was more offended by Christianity than you. He was killing Christians, and we, won't, we don't advise that. But when he realized Jesus had been raised, it didn't matter what offended him anymore. It didn't matter because it was true. The resurrection is a paradigm-shattering historical event that demands your response. Let's pray. Father, we all, to some degree, live our lives as though they belong to us. And to varying degrees, we have failed to acknowledge you, we've refused to acknowledge you for a variety of reasons. And yet, Father, the truth of the resurrection, that Jesus came out of the grave and is alive today, is a historical event that demands our attention. It demands our response. And so I pray for all those here that maybe are in a place of outright denial or in a place of investigating that your spirit would take the blinders off, that they would see the truth of your existence, the truth of the resurrection, that they would return in repentance and faith to your son, Jesus. And Father, for those of us maybe that have been in Christ for many years, we wake up every day and in so many ways can function as though, Jesus, you're not risen. And would you take those blinders off that we would see the risen Christ? 
and that we would respond in faith and in hope and that Jesus, you being resurrected and alive today would remove our pessimism. So easy to become pessimistic in our broken world that you would make us a hopeful people. Fathers, we sing to you now. Would you fill our hearts with your spirit and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.